Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So Polish laws aren't the kind of thing we normally talk about, but this week is different because Poland just passed a vaguely Orwellian law that makes it illegal to accuse the Polish nation of complicity in the Holocaust or any other horrific thing the Nazis did. The problem, of course, is that some Polish people were very complicit in the mass murders of the Holocaust at death camps like Auschwitz, which were themselves located in Poland. So, Zach, is this Holocaust denialism in some weird different form? Is this weaponizing history? What is this? Uh, All of the above. I mean, it's important to understand that Poland had a complicated relationship with its Jews prior to World War II. So it would. It was initially, in fact, way back in the 13th century, one of the most tolerant places for Jews. Jews were welcomed in as a way of improving the local economy by, at the time, the Duke of Poland in, in an official decree, and they were given special rights. As time went on, anti-Semitism became more and more prevalent in Poland to the point where when the Nazis came in, a lot of Poles generally agreed with their view of Jews. And while many Poles resisted, in fact, some of the largest numbers of people of any nationality who are recorded as helping Jews during the Holocaust, known as the righteous, there were lots and lots of collaborators, too. And they often ran towns or local councils. So saying that you can't talk about the Polish nation as being complicit with the Holocaust really is a form of Holocaust denial. It's denial about the reality of what happened. So when I was kind of reading up on this, I remember that um, President Obama had actually stepped in it a little bit um, back in 2012. So this law actually was earlier proposed in 2013. It was in part in response to President Obama saying Polish death camps, right, instead of Nazi death camps in Poland. And it's that specific phrase that apparently has a lot of sensitivity in Poland on on both the right and the left, kind of across the spectrum. And that, so my understanding was that part of it is literally just not calling Polish death camps, Polish death camps, but calling them Nazi concentration camps. So I wonder if we could kind of tease out some of the the specifics of the law, like what they are doing and what they aren't doing. Because I think it's important we don't, you know, kind of just gloss over that. It's also, I think, no, I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's also worth talking about what the law does, right? So if you violate this law, you can pay a fine or theoretically you can go to prison. What's interesting to me about the law, um, in part, is the history of what happened to the Poles during World War II, right? So the law is about what the Poles did, but the history of what happened to them is just as important. So six million Poles died in the Holocaust. Three million were Jews, many of them, some of them killed by other Poles, but three million other Polish citizens were killed by the Nazis. So when Poland says we were victims, they're not wrong and they're not making that up. And when they get angry about the phrase, Polish death camps, so the death camps of Poland, they're also not wrong. In fact, Israel itself, the Israeli government, the current Israeli government, which is, as we know, pretty far to the right, it wants to get rid of the phrase Polish death camps. So there's parts of this which I think make it so painful to debate or discuss is that Poland, to a degree, has a point. They were victimized. They did have camps that they did not run. And to a degree, they suffered with millions of deaths. And to sort of imply that they were equal, even though the the law doesn't say that you can't apply it. Like the issue isn't sort of implication of equality. But if you in any way try to liken them to the Nazis, I understand why they'd be angry. Yeah, but the issue here isn't just one phrase or an overall likening, right? It's a broader reckoning of the complicity of really the Polish nation, right? Of the large, of a large number of Poles that were complicit in a culture of institutional anti-Semitism and who collaborated with the Nazis, who helped them. 
I mean, I, this for me is is very personal. My grandmother grew up in Poland in a town called Benjin. Um, and there's a book written about it uh, recently. The book was called A Small Town Near Auschwitz. It was only 30 miles away. And it documents both Poles that helped the Jews who lived there and uh, what they did to them beforehand. Jewish kids had rocks thrown at them. They were called dirty Jew. They were beaten up and they couldn't fight back because if they fought back, they would be beaten up worse. It was the concentration. Benjin was the site of a major ghetto, which after it was liquidated, Jews tried to hide there. And they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't come out and go into Polish bakeries because they knew their Polish neighbors, the people who knew them, would recognize them and turn them into the Nazis. This is this is my family's history that the Polish government is saying we can't discuss in a fully open and true manner. The people who are complicit in the murder of a large number of my family members. And so I don't – I understand that they don't like being blamed for the Holocaust. I want them to understand what it feels like to be on the other end of that as well. Yeah, I mean I think for me, also having been to Poland uh, twice, the first time I went, I went there trying and hoping I would hate it. I wanted it to be this ugly, awful place because of the ugly, awful things that took place there, and it wasn't. It's green and it's forested and it's sort of physically beautiful. Even the areas around the death camps are physically beautiful, which is really horrifying. And what was striking sometimes was, you know, you'd visit a death camp and there'd be a Polish town really close by, really close, where they could either see what was happening, hear what was happening, not to be gross, but smell what was happening. And they did nothing. And then afterwards, they said, in some cases, we didn't know. I, I visited a small town where part of my family uh, was from, and you could still see the houses that were Jewish owned because they had the indentations of what were called the mezuzah. The, it's sort of a, a scroll of Hebrew that's put on the door frames of, of Jewish houses. They were still there. And I asked people who were old, clearly people who were alive when there were Jews there, if there were Jews there. And the answer was, no, there were never Jews here. Never. And I was like pointing to like the outline of a Jewish star on what had been the, the synagogue. They're like, no, 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 we never had any Jews. And so there's the, I think, inherent denial. You don't want to acknowledge that you did something wrong, but you're otherwise, the reason I phrased it as denial of the Holocaust, they're not saying the Holocaust didn't happen, right? So they're not that awful, but they're saying we had no part of it when they did. It, it's it's national whitewashing is what it is, less more right. of the classic Holocaust denial of it didn't happen, not that many Jews were killed, as we bear no responsibility for this. And it's quite different than what you see in Germany, where they can't not bear responsibility for it. But the German state has gone above and beyond in the years since World War II to accept responsibility and have a reckoning surrounding how it is that the Nazi government could be something that happened in Germany. But Poland has decided not to have that kind of reckoning, at least in fact, now under the current government, to actively oppose any more reckoning with their role in something that, frankly, wasn't just done to them, right? They saw the Jews, us, as others and targeted us as such, domestic others, not really Poles, never Poles in their understanding. So I think it's interesting, too, that there, this actually isn't the first law like this that's happened in this area. So um, – uh, Latvia and uh, Ukraine, like a couple other countries, um, but especially some in the Baltics, have passed similar laws like recently, like even there's one in 2015, and um, they're very similar. And it's interesting because, you know, we saw this big kind of reaction in particular, um, you know, from, from Jews around the world, but also from the Israeli government, right, from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, to this, to the Polish law, and he's called on them to, you know, draft it and change the language, not, you know, repeal the law, but, you know, could you tweak it so maybe it doesn't say what it does now. But he didn't seem to respond to some of those other ones. But I think it's fascinating that 
I think part of it has to do with Poland's like unique kind of role in the history. Whereas, you know, we don't tend to think about, you know, Latvia, right? Like in some relation to the Holocaust. But like Poland is a very central place, not just geographically, but, you know, in the historical memory. So I think part of that kind of helps explain that. And I, I just thought that was fascinating. There's a book that came out in 2001 called Neighbors, which was also uh, excerpted in The New Yorker. Um, I'll be tweeting out links to it later in the day because the piece is extraordinary. But it, it describes this slaughter, the mass slaughter, in, in a really horrific way of the Jews of a small town in Poland. They're basically herded into a building that was then set on fire. And beyond the kind of nightmarish image of that, what comes through in the article is the SS, so the Nazis themselves, said to the Poles, you're being too brutal. Stop killing Jews. Leave some of the Jews here alive. And like the Poles were like, no, 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 we're going to keep going and then killed everyone else. So I'm not trying to be glib in how I say that, but think of that. The Poles themselves in killing the Jews of this town, their neighbors, their friends, were so brutal that the Nazis said too much. What's interesting is, you know, we want to talk about maybe just reaction to these specific phrases, right? And it's maybe, you know, the argument on the part of the government is this not Holocaust denial, except that there are prominent politicians in Poland, part of this party, who actually specifically called out that scholar who wrote the book you're referring to and are criticizing and saying that his scholarship is essentially fake news, right? They're, it's biased. It's, you know, they, they push back against that narrative. So it, it does go a lot deeper. It is a broader pushback against any kind of involvement and complicity. Well, it's important to bear in mind the nature of the current Polish government, right? After the end of the Cold War, Poland set itself up as a constitutional democracy. But the current Polish government has been steadily, quietly, but but over the course of time, rolling back democratic protections. They've been corrupting the court system. They've been generally concentrating power in their own hands. It's a really worrying situation, and parties like this, the Law and Justice Party, as Duda's party is known, uh, has worked uh, to to make nationalism and and anti-refugee sentiment a major part of its appeal. And so this kind of thing, this saying we aren't responsible for the horrors in our past, not only helps mobilize support, but it also helps say our kind of new nationalism is dangerous. I also think it's really important to point out that they pushed this law through literally overnight, and it was like the day before International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So that was another kind of reason why, like, that's not really a good look to do it, you know, happy International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're going to not remember the Holocaust accurately. Last night I was reading the law itself, not in Polish because uh, I don't speak Polish. Um, but I'd be the, impressed if you did. Yeah, so would my, most of my family. Um, but the translation of the law is kind of interesting. And I, I just want to read a little bit of the law itself which is it talks about whoever claims publicly and contrary to the facts, this is the law, that the Polish nation or the Republic of Poland is responsible or co-responsible for Nazi crimes committed by the Third Reich or other, for other felonies that constitute crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, blah, blah, blah. It grossly diminishes the responsibility of the true perpetrators of said crimes. And so what's interesting is, and again, some of that, the way that's written is true, right? Like, it does sort of diminish the true crimes when you say Polish death camp. That's wrong. It does say to a degree if the Poland is responsible, that is also wrong. And that's why I find this just it's a hard one to get my arms around or to make make um, excuse me. It's a hard one to sort of make up my own mind about because on the one hand, a lot about it is troubling. On the other hand, a lot about what's said of Poland is also troubling and wrong. Another interesting point of the law itself is that there are two exceptions in it for scholarly and artistic expression, which I think actually highlight the problems with the bill. 
Because what qualifies as scholarly expression? Who right. decides whether something is artistic? Right. And those kinds of things illustrate that this isn't just about the politics of memory, though obviously that's the primary focus. It's also about setting up acceptable governmental infringements on speech, of saying the government can and can't decide what forms of expression are acceptable. And Yoka, you're right to say that there's something wrong in describing them as Polish death camps. But I think that we've, if anything, underestimated Polish complicity in the Holocaust, not overestimated it. But it's also wrong for the government to be involved in policing a kind of phrase like that that's just offensive. And the government itself is kind of interesting. And Jen, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that they just pushed this through because, you know, Zach, you're talking about how they're cracking down to a degree on free society, on, on the media and others. But this is the way that Donald Trump, who visited Poland very early in his, in his term, this is how Donald Trump described the government of Poland. President Duda and your wonderful first lady, Agata, have welcomed us with the tremendous warmth and kindness for which Poland is known around the world. Thank you. So, so setting aside that uh, Trump was one vowel away in the opening from a vaguely embarrassing international incident, there are a lot of things Poland is known for. And I'm sure there are huge numbers of Polish people who are warm and hospitable. But to say the country itself then or now is known for being warm and hospitable, bit of a stretch. Well, it's a little chilly. But setting aside the weather, it's the, just this current government's overall approach, right? It's its role in Europe right now, it together with Hungary, are sort of a new block opposing EU integration of refugees, uh, its treatment of minority groups, the moves towards authoritarianism. None of those are uh, none of those are exactly welcoming signs. But I think that this this sort of quasi authoritarianism you're seeing there intersects really nicely with the politics of memory from their point of view, not. From ours, right? And in a lot of different authoritarian countries around the world, history is used as a way of building up of building up a, a set of national identities and core commitments to the state and loyalty to the state of polarizing their citizens versus others in a way that helps cement their control. What's interesting also is that it is not simply overseas nor in authoritarian countries that history is whitewashed or politicized or turned into a weapon. That's true. Jim, we were talking a little bit before we came here about the U.S. and the way that stuff is weaponized and turned into a weapon and distorted. Right. I mean, you know, we saw this recently with, um, you know, the issues about Confederate monuments, right? So, you know, the argument is we are, you know, we're erasing history if we take down these monuments, which is bullshit, um, to, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, most of these monuments were built long, long after the actual end of the Civil War, and were built during a Jim Crow era as an explicit white power pride symbol to show black people where your place belongs. And taking those down is not whitewashing history. If you want to, like, actually recognize history and deal with it, you put up monuments to the survivors and victims, not to the perpetrators. And it's also, you know, just in, in my experience, I'm, I went to—I grew up in Texas— and my textbooks literally were rewritten at a certain point from the Texas Board of Education to change the reason for the Civil War from slavery to states' rights. I was literally taught that the answer to a question on a multiple choice quiz of what caused the Civil War, if you answered slavery, that was incorrect. You were told it was states' rights. And it actually wasn't until I got to college that I realized that wasn't the case because it was literally taught that by an educational institution. So we see that kind of national or you know regional, in this case, like narrative 
we don't want to be complicit. We don't want to look like we were part of this kind of other thing. But that's not how you deal with history, right? But it's nationalism or it's regionalism. But it's it's about this kind of broader narrative of pride and nationalism. Nationalism in itself is going to whitewash a lot of really bad things because that's just how the world worked, right? Like this shit happened and it's ugly and we don't want to talk about it because, you know, make America great again. And also at some point, you can't avoid it. At some point, it causes a rupture in a serious way. So not just the debates here at home about taking down the monuments or making America great again or find people on both sides. But if you look at other countries that do something similar, where they refuse to acknowledge the things they've done, a couple that come to mind for me, and I, and I know uh, for you there may be more. So until recently, Japan wouldn't recognize what it did to comfort women, which is a horrible phrase. Basically, it would not recognize that during World War II, hundreds of thousands of Korean women were kidnapped, brought to Japanese military bases, and gang-raped, basically, for years. And that was not recognized by the Japanese government until very recently. Still to this day, the Turkish government won't recognize the genocide of Armenians to the point that it will threaten countries and say, if you recognize it, we'll sanction you, we'll cut ties, to the point that the United States itself does not recognize the Turkish genocide committed against Armenians. Yeah, in all of these cases— International conflict between countries that are otherwise on decent terms breaks out South Korea and Japan. You know, they're part of the same U.S.-led alliance system. Uh, Turkey and the U.S. are both NATO members, right? But conflict over these issues come up because history is still so potent for these people because – and for all for all yeah, of us, right, really, yeah. right? There's a reason that I care so much about this law in Poland when I don't live there. And I guess I'm technically eligible for a Polish passport, though I don't have one. It speaks to really personal parts of your life. It speaks to your ancestors, to your family, to your sense of self. And if governments don't listen to the way their people think about that, then uh, they they pay electoral prices or they pay political prices. And oftentimes the people in government themselves really care about these issues, right? This isn't just them politicizing things. The part of it is always strategic. People play on this to, to build up national sentiment or to build up white supremacist settle, uh, sentiment in the case of Charlottesville. It, it's about their deep feelings about what makes their country worthwhile and why they should have pride in it. Yeah. So so the U.S. State Department, you know, made a statement in response to like the Polish law saying that they are, they're deeply troubled by it, et cetera. But that was one of the things that, that they flagged specifically was – it could disrupt relations between between Israel and Poland and between the U.S. and Poland. And so it was part of it. So Secretary of State Rex Tillerson did say, like, this goes against democratic values and we stand for having all of the facts out there and accurately recording history, which is interesting to hear from a member of the Trump administration. But that's another issue. But it also was a broader kind of geopolitical issue, right? Like, yes, this is a problem kind of in general, but also like this is problematic. Like it causes ruptures. Right. And the Polish government knew that the Israeli government wouldn't like it and they knew the Americans wouldn't like it and they did it anyway. They did it anyway for both political and historical reasons and for the ways in which politics and this kind of historical memory can't be disentangled, right? This is this very complicated pattern of Polish nationalism and authoritarian government legitimizing itself and an authoritarian government developing an ideology, right? Because this is a new, incipient authoritarian government without a deep ideological backbone. And I think just to, to wrap the segment a little bit, it's interesting to note that there are countries that arguably go too far. So to the degree that Poland is now making it illegal to discuss what it did and, and the crimes it committed in Germany, and it's always the counterpoint, right? Like for obvious reasons, if you're looking at Poland, you have to look at Germany. 
Germany has accepted its, its responsibility to an extraordinary degree. I mean, every German city has some kind of memorial to the Jews that were killed there, most small towns, every museum. But all over the country, you see this. Every textbook, you see this. German politicians talk about it constantly. And in a strange way, you have a, the rise of the far right in Poland, which doesn't want to talk about it because they are nationalists who are sort of anti-Semitic. In Germany, you have the rise of far right, in part reacting to Germany's acceptance of what it did. So there isn't an easy answer, right? Like, this is such an intimate issue because it gets down to the DNA of a country, the DNA of a person, the, the way you want to think about what your parents or grandparents did, that if you take responsibility, part of the country will say too much. If you don't take responsibility, part of the world will say too little. And you end up just with this clash. For many of us, there are subjects we'd have loved to have explored in school, but look back at and think we just didn't have quite enough time. So now you can go back to the things you might have wanted to learn about earlier with The Great Courses Plus. And here's how it works, and here's how and why you should do it. It's a great way to discover new interests, to pick up new hobbies, to learn new things about topics you think you know a lot about but want to know about more. It has fascinating insight from leading professors, experts, historians, academics, the people who know the things you want to learn more about. You have unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category, history, science, math, literature, art, music, pretty much anything you could want. And you can watch or you could listen whenever you want, wherever you want. There's no homework. There's no pressure of exams. And The Great Courses Plus is really lifelong learning at its best. So here's one course you could check out, The Fundamentals of Photography. This is a really fun course where you learn how to take better photos from a National Geographic photographer. So the kind of person who knows this best. You get tips and tricks like how to use lighting, how to frame your photos, whether you're taking it on an iPhone or whether you're using the kind of fancy stuff they use. You just happen to learn a lot. So I know you'll get a lot out of The Great Courses Plus, and right now they're giving my listeners unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures with a free trial. And you get it by going to my special URL. So start exploring today by getting your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly, thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly. For elsewhere, we're crossing the Atlantic back to D.C., more specifically back to our office, more specifically a few blocks from our office, because Donald Trump wants to do a giant military parade that would be right near our office with tanks rolling down the streets, F-16s flying in the air, soldiers marching. It's not particularly popular with the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser. And usually when you see big military parades and celebrating the end of a war, and I don't think that's been announced. So, Jen, you've got parades on your mind. You've got hot takes loaded. Hot takeaway. Right. So during the inauguration, Trump had kind of raised this idea, too, right? He wanted flyovers and tanks and stuff rolling down the streets. But more, more recently, last year, he went to France, to Paris, um, to celebrate kind of Bastille Day with President Emmanuel Macron. And they had a huge French military parade. They had, you know, French fighter jets with the red, white, and blue colors of the French flag, you know, flying over with, like, colored smoke. And it was just this huge thing. And apparently, according to the, the Washington Post uh, story on this, at one point, Trump literally leaned over to Macron and was like, we got to top this. You know, when I first heard this story, I had two re- I had two reactions. So one was like, this sounds like kind of authoritarian, dictatory stuff. So the other day, uh, you know, North Korea actually held a massive military parade where they were, you know, showing off their intercontinental ballistic missiles and things like that. The idea that Trump wants to do that is a little disturbing. But the other thought was like, this is what happens when you take a toddler to the circus and they see an elephant and they're like, "Ooh, I want an elephant. And you're like, you can't have an elephant because that's crazy. And you just can't because you can't have an elephant in the house and stop it. And that's actually kind of like what Muriel Bowser was 
talking in a, the bigger kind of interview she was doing, you know, part of the problem is that DC doesn't want this because, one, it would completely destroy DC's streets to have all these tanks. The military doesn't really seem to want it, even though it's ostensibly for them, for the troops, because it would cost a lot of money. You would have to bring troops and massive equipment and move that all to this city that doesn't have the infrastructure to support it. You'd have to bring, you know, military officers and military service members like out of training. Like it's a huge disruptive thing just because the president thinks it's funny or like a fun idea. It's important to pick up on this point about uh, the authoritarianness of it, because as the initial story suggests, he didn't get the idea from watching film reel of North Korea, right? He got the idea from France. And it's not just authoritarian countries that do this. India also on Republic Day, which is a day commemorating its uh, democratic constitution, they also have a military parade. Ukraine does a military parade in the streets too, right? It's not just North Korea and China that those are the most visible ones. At the same time, it's one thing for a country to have a tradition of military parades like India does on Republic Day. It's another thing for a president who has asserted over and over again that he wants to exert direct control over all branches of the U.S. government to convene a new parade in his own honor, not necessarily for any particular holiday, or if it is, to create a new tradition that's really about him. And, and this is, let's make no mistake, about him. That's what really disturbs me about the way this is presented. I also, you know, he specifically, as you know, Jenny, you're making this point, he got the idea from being in France. He got the idea from being with Emmanuel Macron, seeing the Bastille Day military parades, but doesn't understand clearly because he doesn't know the history of Bastille Day. And frankly, I didn't know this either until I started looking at this yesterday. But the Washington Post made the very good point that foreign troops, allies of France, their troops often march in Bastille Day too. So it isn't just French troops. In recent years, we've had Moroccan troops, Indian troops, British troops, German troops marching on Bastille Day through the streets of Paris. So for Trump, if, if he sees this as like, let's just pound our chest because we're America, well, when France pounds its chest, it's other countries beyond, Wait, the, beyond I, France. I didn't know that. Why? It's a sign for them of unity. It's a sign of alliances matter. Again, something doesn't Trump doesn't believe. It's a sign that it isn't just for one country, which is sort of an amazing thing because it's the opposite message Trump took. And the other thing is, and if you look closely at some of the photos, you see this. It isn't just the French flag that flies on Bastille Day. It's also the flag of the EU. So if Trump were doing the analog to this, you'd have a massive military parade of the U.S., Canadian troops, Israeli troops, British troops— with the UN flag flying proudly alongside the American one. So there's no way in hell that would possibly happen. And I just find that striking because Bastille Day itself, the model he has in mind, is the literal opposite message from what he thinks he's trying to send. That's the cuck parade. Woof. <laughs> the so, cuck parade. So, I mean, going back to kind of the issue of, like, whether the military is actually being honored by this and, and the whole issue of like not having a national tradition, right? So we have had military parades in the U.S. before. They typically nearly always commemorate the end of a war, which, you know, as that clip from Muriel Bowser, we have not uh, ended any wars in, as far as I can tell. The last in one a was, while. was the Gulf War, right? The, it was not, yeah, it was 91. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so it's not part of our national tradition to do this kind of big showy thing. It, and there was an amazing quote I heard yesterday um, on Fox News. So there was this normally super conservative analyst that comes on there, named guy named Ralph Peters. He's a retired lieutenant colonel, um, and he's usually super, you know, rah rah pro military. And he just had the most amazing mic drop quote. So he says, "France marches well. We fight well. Take your pick." 
And I was Oof. like, okay, all right. And he's like, we don't do this. And he was like, you know, he had a broader point. Like, if you want to support the military, there are a lot of things you can do. And his point was like, pass a defense spending bill or, you know, things like that. Um, but just having parades. And I think, you know, if any of you, like I do, I know both of you know people who actually serve in the U.S. military, very, very, very few of them are interested in being like praised and honored for their service. It's just kind of like, okay, that's what I do. Like, th- yeah, thank you for your service. Okay. But like, they're not doing it for like glory and to be, you know, this huge kind of showy thing. And I think most of them would probably be like, that's weird. We don't want that. It's also not just journalists who are looking at this and thinking, as Zach, to your point, that this is all about Trump. Lindsey Graham was asked about it and he said, it's kind of cheesy and a sign of weakness. So this is a pretty hawkish Republican of, you know, guy who serves in the Air Force has become pretty close to Trump, and he's calling it cheesy. Did so, he actually say cheesy? Yeah. Lindsey Graham is the cattiest senator. It's, he really, really is. The cattiest senator. But they're making fun of it. And John Kennedy, uh, another Republican, had America is the most powerful country in all of human history. Everyone knows it. We don't need to show it off. So you've got in that one the combination of pro-America chest pounding mixed with this is still a dumb idea. That's because it is, right? Like the treads of the tanks would literally tear up the streets in Washington. And like I know most people think of it as this place uh, where people make bad laws and waste your money. But we live here and hundreds of thousands of other people live here. To be mm-hmm. fair, the streets are kind of shitty already. I'm just going to say. Well, yeah. And that makes it worse, right? Like, <laughs> right. I would not, like there are potholes already. Maybe if we could not have an Abrams tank rolling down and making 16 more, that would be fantastic. Um, well, I mean, for the largely black population of Washington, like this is another thing that the federal government is imposing on them. The federal government screws with D.C. all the time. It doesn't think about the consequences. So this isn't just Trump doing something to massage his ego that seems vaguely authoritarian. It's Trump making life worse concretely for service members and for residents of Washington just so he can feel powerful. And and explicitly, and Jen, and you're telling the story, so he can feel more powerful than the president of France. Which, like, come on. Do you really have an inferiority complex But he France? does. Like, we've seen that with the handshake issue with him, like, trying to be dominant. Like, it's all about him being, like, the alpha male, the big tough guy, like, I'm the best. And he thinks that the military backs that, like, that he can use that to bolster his image. It's also, we should probably mention, he hasn't actually ever served in the military and got multiple draft deferments by claiming he had bone spurs in his heel. So it's not even like he actually has military service or understands what it means to like sacrifice your life for a broader cause. I, mean, I would just close by noting that beyond this sort of obvious absurdity in some ways of this, it does also make two kind of serious points. One is if you are having a parade, which you know the mayor pointed out, you typically do when a war is over. Not only are the wars that Trump inherited not over, but we have more troops in Iraq, more troops in Afghanistan. We have troops on the ground in Syria. We have troops fighting and on the ground to a degree in Yemen, elsewhere across the Middle East. He has talked about war with North Korea. So war is not just not ending. There are potentially wars starting. The other is the military has just spent the last couple of days on Capitol Hill saying, we don't have enough money. Give us more. And if you're trying to sell the message of, a hey, we are a poverty-stricken military, having tanks roll down the streets while planes are flying over those streets, it doesn't work. And I'm glad you brought up North Korea because, as I said earlier— North Korea just had a massive military parade, and they use those as these provocative propaganda kind of look how tough we are. Here are our big missiles. And the fact that we have been locked in really highly tense 
kind of nuclear standoff with North Korea, if we were to respond with a military parade, even if it had nothing to do with North Korea, or if it does, right? Maybe Trump does want to look tough. But even if it didn't, it still would very likely be read as a provocation at a time when that's the last thing that we need is more provocation in that situation. Yay. I think we end there. Jen, thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Happy birthday, Zach. (laughs) He's finally hit his 20s. It's a big day here at Vox. (laughs) One day you could rent a car legally, although that day is not today. No, I've left my 20s. Now I'm 30. It's weird. We have to let him in the uh, the Vox Olds Slack channel now. Oh my God, I I can join the Olds channel. We'll have a little ceremony. It'll be intense. (laughs) I hope the ceremony involves my AARP card. (laughs) We want to give a thank you, as always, to our producer, Bert Pinkerton, to our engineer, Peter Leonard, our social media manager, Julie Bogan, and before we close, I want to point to something we're kind of proud of. If you go to Vox.com today, you will see a deep dive written by yours truly about what a war with North Korea would actually look like. So it's something we've talked about on the show, something we'll talk about in the future. It isn't just Trump tweets. It isn't just the tweets of Kim Jong-un. It's what would the war actually be? And the takeaway is a lot of people would die in a lot of very scary ways. You can find that at Vox.com. You can find an accompanying video on YouTube. Come read, come watch, and we'd love to hear what you think. If you like what you've heard, we hope you do. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, any place you find podcasts. Subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. That's how we grow the community around the show. If you want to find us, email worldlyatvox.com. Find us on Twitter. We try to respond to everything and we read everything regardless. And we'll be with you all next week. 